so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the weekly tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the public square. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Harry Lee Poe to talk about the life and faith of C.S. Lewis in light of the final volume, The Completion of C.S. Lewis, in his three-part biography published by Crossway. Dr. Poe serves as the Charles Colson Professor of Faith and Culture at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, where he's taught a course on C.S. Lewis for over 20 years. He's the author of more than 20 books, including Becoming C.S. Lewis and The Making of C.S. Lewis, as well as numerous articles on Lewis and the Inklings. Poe hosts annual Inklings weekends in North Carolina and is a regular speaker on Lewis at universities and other venues around the world. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Poe, it's a real honor to have you here on the Digital Public Square podcast and to talk about the life and work of C.S. Lewis. I know this is someone that you have spent a lot of time digging into, and it's a real joy to have you here on the podcast today. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate the invitation. As we get started, I want to ask a little bit about what prompted you to write something like this. This is a pretty massive undertaking to write a three-volume biography of Lewis, but obviously you've been studying Lewis and his works and his influence for many, many years. So what prompted you to write a biography like this? I don't think I ever would have written uh, a three-volume biography of Lewis intentionally. This is an accidental biography. There were some fine biographies out there, but I was concerned with his uh, youth, his teenage years. I had worked with teenagers in, in ministry uh, over the years and had a big concern for churches' youth ministries, which I think are really struggling in the United States today. And um, I realized that most of the major interests, likes, dislikes of C.S. Lewis were formed when he was a teenager. And his conversion ran along the track of his uh, preferences as a teenager. His career as a literary person was determined by his choice of reading as a teenager. His apologetic work was the result of things that happened when he was a teenager. So I was on, I thought I was just writing a book about his teenage years, because it had largely been uh, neglected, uh, but I thought it was 
critically important. Once I'd finished it, um, I mulled it over, and it, you, when it ends, he's not a Christian yet. <laughs> he didn't become a Christian until he was um, in his early 30s. And so I asked uh, Crossway if, if they would be willing for me to do a second volume that looked at Lewis from the end of World War one till the end of World War II. It's a critical period because uh, halfway through that period, he becomes a believer, and then uh, he becomes the most prominent Christian apologist uh, of the 20th century during that period. So they very graciously agreed to let me write a second volume if I would write the third volume. So that's how I accidentally bit off more than I should have chewed, but nonetheless, it was a joy to do it. I thoroughly enjoyed the, the project. Yeah, well, we are indebted to you because this is not only a beautifully written biography uh, trilogy here, but also beautifully designed. Uh, I come from a communications background, and I just love the way that Crossway put these three volumes together. Um, I want to press in a little bit in terms of behind this biography and kind of what sets it apart from other biographies. I mean, as you well know, there are numerous biographies of Lewis on the market today. Is it just kind of the defining features of kind of exploring his youth that are different and kind of set this apart? Or are there other aspects of the biography now that it's a trilogy um, that kind of set it apart from other kind of works or even biographies on Lewis? Well, the emphasis on his youth is certainly important because um, most biographies just don't have enough space to go into depth. They're, they're limited by page count, and so they're things that they just can't treat. And so with the, the, the amount of space that Crossway gave me, I was able to do things that others simply could not do for lack of space. So there's, there's that. The other thing that I've done, I've sort of departed from the tradition. And there's a, a tradition of Lewis biographies that goes back to the 1960s. Lewis's brother, Warney, and his good friend, Roger Lancelin Green, wrote Memoirs of Lewis. And then Green and, and Walter Hooper wrote the fir first full biography, which sort of is based on the material from Warney's memoir. And um, Green and Hooper both knew Lewis. So there's an extent to which that first biography is memoir as much as biography. Now, the difference is that in a memoir, somebody's writing what they remember, and the memory plays tricks on us. And um, the third important biography of Lewis was written by George Sayer, who was a student of Lewis, close friend of Lewis. And again, it's a very fine biography. It's really my favorite. But again, it's a memoir because he's writing about the Lewis that he knew, but he only knew a part of Lewis. And so I left the tradition, and of course, I wasn't thinking I was writing a full-blown biography. And I, I just focused on the primary sources, that is the letters, the diaries of Lewis, letters of, of his brother, his father, and uh, their friends, so that, that I had what was going on at the moment, rather than remembering 30, 40, 50 years later what had gone on. And you get a more objective picture that way. So that, that would be, in, in terms of methodology, 
that that would be a difference. Alistair McGrath wrote a fine biography that came out in 2013, the 50th anniversary of the death of Lewis. And um, he has done much of that. But again, he's, he's limited in what he could do because of the page count. I would say that I, I uh, in some ways, that this my biography is controversial because I've, I think I am correcting a lot of misconceptions. For instance, Lewis had a, a, a very close friend, Owen Barfield. Barfield was not a Christian; he was an anthroposophist, which um, Lewis referred to him as a Gnostic. So he, he did not hold to uh, the historic Christian faith. He, he believed the Bible was uh, pretty much a, a reflection of the status of religion at the time it was written, but he believes in a, it believed in an evolutionary understanding of religion and that the um, human race has a collective imagination that is evolving. And so the, the more creative ideas about religion that have come along are, are the more accurate ones. So he affirmed all of the heretics of the last 2,000 years. Now, I mentioned that to say that most people who study and write about Lewis assume that Owen Barfield was one of the Inklings and shared the same views and opinions as the Inklings, but he, he really wasn't one of the Inklings. He lived in London. This is The Inklings, by the way, for your listeners who are not familiar, this was the literary club that Lewis belonged to along with J.R.R. Tolkien met in Oxford. They all lived in Oxford. They were all Christians. And so that would be a controversial matter to say that Owen Barfield was was not one of the Inklings. And I make several other proposals. For instance, um, I believe Lewis is probably the source for the plot to The Hobbit and the plot to The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Lewis's favorite story was a story in which the hero goes to the ends of the world to accomplish some great task, some great feat, often in the service of a great lady, the damsel in distress. And in the course of going on the journey, fighting the unbeatable foe, going where the brave dare not go, he's changed. He comes back a different person. So it's the story of there and back again. And lo and behold, that's the subtitle to The Hobbit. All of Lewis's fiction follows that plot. All the Chronicles of Narnia and his three science fiction novels follow that plot. Tolkien's stories, on the other hand, that are recorded in the Silmarillion, all uh, are a matter of you, you go there and you die. It's, they're stories of doom, disaster, desolation, destruction, despair. And so when Tolkien was working on The Hobbit and just didn't know what to do with it, he wrote a a few pages, and then he, he didn't know where to go with it. Lewis was doing a, a major study of the medieval romances that were the stories of there and back again, like the Holy Grail, or the quest for the Holy Grail, or uh, the Fairy Queen. So I, I think that's where Tolkien got the plot idea. That's all fascinating. And I know I have a friend who's a very big uh, Tolkien fan as well as a Lewis fan, and he's been very much looking forward to this podcast. Uh, Seth, if you're listening, this is for you. Well, I know that you've been teaching now uh, a class there at Union University where you serve as a professor uh, for over 20 years on Lewis. You've been writing on Lewis. You've been thinking on Lewis. You've obviously been working on this biography. 
Uh, the class is very interesting to me because I would assume that many students come to the class maybe with some recollection, some exposure, and maybe even some misconceptions of Lewis as they maybe begin a course like that. And I wanted to see kind of what is that some of the things that you see evolve in a course like that in, in terms of students' thought and their understanding of Lewis. Are there any kind of preconceived notions that you feel like you're, you all are able to clear up in class or are there kind of a renewed interest in particular areas? Areas. Just talk to us a little bit about uh, the nature of a class like that, kind of focusing on one man and his thought for an entire semester. Well, um, the, the new generation of students don't know much about C.S. Lewis. Um, he, he's not as well known now as he was, oh, 15 years ago when the movies came out. Of course, there was a lot of interest in him. And in the 90s, when um, Shadowlands came out, there was a lot of interest in him at that point. So it ebbs and flows. I'm anticipating there'll be more interest when Netflix begins to produce the Chronicles of Narnia for streaming. But um, those who do know of Lewis are familiar with um, the Chronicles of Narnia. So they may have encountered Lewis as children. Some who attended Christian schools or were homeschooled have come across mere Christianity, and some have read The Abolition of Man, which I think is a, a more difficult book for the average person because the mere Christianity was for a general radio audience. But Abolition of Man was a series of lectures he gave at a university. Uh, so they are more technical. They're, they're a bit more difficult to follow, but quite lucid and uh, well worth the read. So students are often interested in Lewis for the romance of Oxford, for the romance of uh, an academic person writing fantasy, and uh, many of them are interested in broader kinds of literature that uh, Lewis uh, represents. So you've, you've got a, a mixed bag of why people decide they, they'd like to spend a semester with him. There's always a group that are interested in him because of his ability to speak to a popular culture and make um, the Christian faith understandable. And um, that's one of the main reasons I teach the course. I tell my students once they're in there, uh, I smile and say, they didn't tell you this at registration, but this is actually an evangelism course. Not not one in which I try to evangelize them, though that's certainly possible, but in which they can rethink how they are going to go about the next 50 or 70 years uh, talking to people about their faith. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. One of the things you mentioned early on, as you were saying, kind of what sets this trilogy apart in that very first volume, which was the original volume that you planned to write, you talk a little bit about how early or how Lewis's early life has been often neglected. You mentioned that, but you also write about that a little bit in the book. So what are some of those early questions, interests, struggles, influences that deeply shaped Lewis, even in an early age, even before he was a Christian that we see kind of teasing playing out? What are some of those kind of early questions and things that he's wrestling with that you think are so formative for the rest of his life? Okay, well, um, first of all, Lewis was that odd kid who didn't fit in. For an, uh, for an interesting reason, he, he had what essentially amounts to a physical handicap. He couldn't bend his thumbs, which meant he was clumsy, which meant he was bad at sports when it came to catching a ball, throwing, throwing a ball, passing a ball, holding a bat. 
And in our culture, in the English-speaking world, a boy who can't play sports has no validity as a human being. And, um, you know, they're the the sort of, of kid that you exclude, that you push aside, you dismiss, you're cruel to. And so he was that kid. So uh, that was one point. The second point, he was from Ireland. And his mother believed that if he was to have a chance, he and his brother, to have a chance to rise in society, and it was very class-conscious culture, the English culture, he needed to obliterate his Irish accent and get an English accent. So he was sent to school, boarding school in England. Well, in England at that time, to a certain extent today, the Irish are viewed as subhuman, like uh, pond scum. They're they're not they're they're animals, and it didn't matter if you were Catholic or Protestant in Ireland from the English perspective. The, the, they were they're all just Irish, and so Lewis was cruelly treated by his, his headmaster and the boys in school when he was in what we would say call elementary school. He finally left that school. Uh, and and went to uh, another one, what we would call middle school, again, boarding school. And there in Latin studies, the Latin teacher explained to them that all the mythologies of, of Rome and Greece were just made up tales to explain or talk about natural phenomena. And he concluded, well, that's what the Bible is. It's just these stories people made up long time ago. And so that was the uh, linchpin in his um, move to atheism. The emotional trigger for it was that his mother had died of cancer when he was nine years old. And so he was dealing with that issue that almost everybody in the world deals with at some time. If there's a good, all-powerful, loving God, then why did he let my mother die? Uh, why does he let bad things happen to good people? So L- Lewis understood the problem of suffering or the problem of evil from the perspective of his own experience. So he's, he goes then to what we would call high school, public school in England, which is private school. There he was a disaster. His brother and father thought he was a, a prime candidate to become an axe murderer, total mm-hmm. sociopath. And so they, his father took him out of the school and sent him to live with his own headmaster who had retired and was taking on uh, one student a year to tutor. So Lewis lived with the Kirkpatricks in uh, in England in the village of Great Bookham. And Kirkpatrick was uh, a philosophical atheist. He'd worked through it. He was a materialist, highly rational. He taught Lewis to think. And so the, the preparation to write something like Mere Christianity came from Kirkpatrick, who, who taught him how to put together an argument, how to critique an argument, take it apart. So in the daytime, Lewis was was drinking deeply of materialist views of life. But at night, in his pleasure reading, he was reading all the great literature of the Western tradition, going back to, um, well, in, for his, his Greek study, he was reading Homer's Iliad in Greek. So the whole sweep of it, and he fell in love with these heroic stories of courage and and justice and duty and honor and truth and 
all these values. Well, the problem is, in a materialistic universe, there's nothing but brute matter. Nothing is right or wrong, good or bad, beautiful or ugly. There's just what is. There are no values. And so he was now living with cognitive dissonance. How do I explain values that I love, but they can't be real because they're not physical objects? And from a materialist, atheistic perspective, you've only got physical objects that can be known with sense perception. And so justice can't be real. Nothing's right or wrong. So these troubling questions were coming to him as a teenager. And those who know Lewis will realize that the um, introductory salvo to his radio broadcast that became Mere Christianity was a, a series of lectures on right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. And um, he said, we know there's such a thing as right and wrong from our own experience. We know when wrong has been done to us. We may not notice when we do wrong to someone else, but we sure know it <laughs> when we've experienced it. And when we use the word wrong, we're comparing it to something, some standard. And what is this standard? So all of these ideas were coming to Lewis as a teenager, but also as a teenager falling in love with this, this literature Though he'd planned on being a philosopher, he couldn't get a job as a philosopher when he finished Oxford. He stayed on an extra year and did another degree in English. Now, most people can't do a college degree in one year. The reason Lewis could do it was because he had done all the reading as a teenager in the evenings. He read over 200 books those two years he was living with Kirkpatrick, and that was what he needed to pass his exams at Oxford. I want to pick up a little bit on that uh, materialist kind of naturalist stream. So one of the things that as I was doing some of my work in moral philosophy and ethics, that's my background and training, I came across uh, Elizabeth Anscombe and her kind of famous interaction with C.S. Lewis there at the Oxford Socratic Club. And one of the things that was really fascinating to me about that exchange and even reading Anscombe's account is that she didn't disagree with Lewis's conclusion, but she didn't like his argument that he presented in this kind of uh, debate kind of format that they had set up there in Oxford. I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about this debate. This debate has taken on quite the lore over the years um, between Anscombe's account and also Lewis's account and others to say how this shaped Lewis um, and even seeing some updates to his work like Miracles um, in a further edition where he sharpened some of that. I want to see if you could unpack that debate a little bit about some of the naturalistic assumptions um, and some of the argumentation that Anscombe critiqued Lewis on. And then this kind of, in some ways, everyone felt, and at least some of those accounts will say that Lewis was kind of caught flat-footed. He didn't really know how to respond per se. But I wanted to see if you could cut through and help us to understand a little bit about the reality and how that shaped Lewis as, as a thinker and a philosopher. Okay. Well, uh, well um, your question illustrates why we should never give a microphone to a philosopher. Uh, <laughs> because it, 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 um, it, it's a good four-hour answer. But let me let me hit just a few high points for for your listeners. Um, we've just entered into a highly specialized esoteric area of philosophy known as linguistic analysis, and Lewis was trained in classical philosophy, the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle and 
that tradition that came apart at the seams in the 1920s uh, under the leadership of a fellow known as Ludwig uh, Wittgenstein. I believe he was Viennese uh, and was was teaching at Cambridge. And um, Elizabeth Anscombe was his brightest student and his official translator and interpreter. And she was, she was a brilliant woman. She was a devout Catholic and agreed, as you said, agreed with Lewis completely. But she objected to his argument on linguistic and analytical grounds. She didn't like his choice of words and his grammar. And this threw Lewis for a loop because he, until then, he'd never really dealt with linguistic analysis. And I've talked with people who were there that night. Basil Mitchell was the Nolith professor of uh, philosophy at Oxford University, and he was the vice president of the Socratic Club. This uh, debate took place at the Socratic Club, which Lewis presided over. and. Um, Anthony Flew was one of the leading atheist philosophers of the 20th century. He was there that night. And as far as they were concerned, there was no debate. It, for the, the philosophers who heard it heard clarification and minor adjustments. Several nights later, Lewis had supper with um, several English students and his friend Hugo Dyson. And he was bemoaning the fact that he had embarrassed himself uh, at the Socratic Club. And so from the perspective of the English students who were not there, Lewis suffered a dreadful defeat. From the perspective of the philosophy students who were there, including an atheist, not much had happened. (laughs) So it's interesting. And Anscombe, in the few years after that meeting, said she wasn't aware of a debate, and there certainly wasn't any winning or losing. But here we get to the issue of the memoir. Decades later, she spoke to the C.S. Lewis Society of of Oxford. And um, at that point, what was that, 30 years later, 40 years later, she had now won the great debate. So that, that that's the problem of the passage of time and, and recollections and, and looking back. But Basil Mitchell and his friend John Lucas, who was another professor of philosophy at, at Oxford, restaged the debate in the 1960s. Lucas took the part of, of Lewis and presented Lewis's argument. Anscombe represented herself and was soundly trounced. And what was the difference? Uh, Mitchell and Lucas said that Anscombe knew uh, what they called gamesmanship. That is, she pulled out some tricks. She came dressed in a man's suit, smoking a cigar, and um, completely flummoxed poor Lewis, who wasn't known for his his debates with women. <laughs> and she she completely threw him off his game uh, with those tricks. John Lucas, you know, a different generation in the 60s, was not thrown off at all or intimidated by Anscombe. So that that's a that's sort of the backstory. 
No, that's really helpful. These are some of the kind of the interesting little tidbits in, in someone's life that as you reflect and read through biographies, and also as I was reading Anscombe and kind of seeing her perspective and seeing kind of her devotees kind of present this, it's really interesting to kind of get multiple perspectives on an issue like that. Yeah, and I, I, I deal with it some in the book, but the the question at hand is an extremely important one. Lewis was saying, if you can find one example of a miracle in the universe, then you've demonstrated that the miraculous can happen. You don't have to have a lot of examples. You only need one. And uh, of the supernatural interfering with the course of nature. And he said the problem is uh, the human mind and consciousness rationality. That's the big problem for the naturalist. For the naturalist, everything happens, um, you know, the, 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 by natural selection, which is to say by chance, uh, randomness, and it arises from brute matter. And the problem is, how do you get rationality out of irrationality? And Anscombe said, well, you should call it non-rationality rather than irrationality. So that was her quibble. But it's an extremely important point because no less a person than Charles Darwin was perplexed by the same problem. Darwin, in a letter to his son, said the big problem with his theory is human consciousness and and rationality. It it doesn't make sense that the rational could come from the irrational. And uh, Lewis was not aware of that that letter because it hadn't been published at that point. But Lewis had the same issue with it as, as Charles Darwin himself. I know one of the things you mentioned early on is, especially as you were talking to your students about this as an evangelism course, one of the brilliant things about Lewis is his oratory skills and the way he could communicate uh, with the everyday common person as well as academics. And he was just a great orator. He's obviously a uh, really well-known writer. And his ability to communicate through the written word and speaking is almost unparalleled. And that's one of the reasons I think makes him such an interesting figure for folks and why they're so drawn to him is the way he was able to communicate. So I wanted to see, just asking as we start to kind of wrap things up, what can we learn from Lewis in that sense, in the way that he communicated and engaged other people, and the way that he thought critically, but also didn't get lost in the complexity? I think sometimes that happens with academics is that we can get lost in the complexity instead of kind of pulling back and going from a simplistic understanding, as one of my professors have said, go from simplistic understanding into the complexity, wrestle with it, and then come out of the other side with kind of these simple ideas that communicate depth, but they're also very clear and approachable. What is it about Lewis that was so attractive in that? And what can we learn from someone like Lewis as we go about the task of life and engagement and uh, evangelism and apologetics and just the daily life? What can we learn from Lewis in that front? Well, I think you you gave a good example, taking a very difficult idea and understanding it well enough to be able to explain it to someone. And if, if you can't explain it, you probably don't really understand it yourself. He had the advantage of coming from uh, a hard-bitten materialistic background and uh, rejecting that and embracing Jesus Christ. So he knew how the other perspective thought and how they felt. And a phrase that you'll find Lewis using over and over in his letters, in some of his essays, is the other way around. 
and to think of something from the other way around. And so um, in order to uh, have an impact on someone, you need to understand how they think, what their assumptions are, what their presuppositions are. And in communicating with people, it's very important to listen rather than to assume and to understand exactly what their issues are uh, and because they'll tell you if you'll just take the time to listen. And Lewis did that. He, he understood the other person's point of view and took the time to then address their real issues rather than their imagined issues. Yeah. That's something that I always find really fascinating is I'm teaching students and helping them to read people in their own words and to deal with the issues that they're actually dealing with rather than bringing a lot of presuppositions. Just read people in their own words and understand their own argument uh, that they're making before you start to critique them. And I think that's something that I think not only from Lewis, but kind of just general cultural engagement, I think is wise for us as Christians as we navigate some really tough challenges today and engaging people of various backgrounds and ideas. One of the things that I want to do, we always end on the same question, but before we get to that question about additional resources and kind of where to start, uh, given your expertise and kind of experience with Lewis over so many, many years, what's your favorite Lewis work? I know everyone has their own favorite, but what is your favorite Lewis work and why? Yes, it's um, it's a very difficult question because it changes <laughs> with the seasons and what I'm interested in. I've just found him very helpful over the years in thinking through different issues from science and faith to um, politics and faith to just all, all sorts of issues of cultural engagement. His academic book, The Allegory of Love, which is one very few people bother to read, but it's still in print. And academic books don't stay in print for 80 years. So it's a blockbuster. But in it, he demonstrates how to think about a subject, how to take it apart, understand it. Uh, So that would be one of my favorite, but it's not for the casual observer. I think mere Christianity is probably going to continue to be the all-around favorite for its, its simple grasp of some profound truths. Yeah. Do you think of his nonfiction works, that's probably the one that he's going to be most remembered for in terms of mere Christianity? Or do you think some other works may kind of take that mantle? I, I think mere, mere Christianity is is still effective and is still helpful in thinking through, you know, that, that question of are, are values real? And if so, then where do they come from? You know, that's the, that's the big question. That was his issue in his conversion. So to that extent, mere Christianity is his testimony in the third person. He doesn't say me. Well, sometimes he does say me, but there are people for whom that is an issue. And I think screw tape letters will be around. I think a grief observed will be for his nonfiction. Yeah. Well, We always end on the same question here at the podcast, and one of the reasons we do this is to equip our listeners to dig a little bit deeper. It's one thing to hear a podcast conversation and kind of be engaged on this, but we want to take it further and to kind of be able to dig in a little bit. And so to that end, I wanted to ask you, obviously, there are a plethora of biographies. Obviously, you've written a brilliant trilogy here, so we want to encourage listeners to go and purchase that, especially that first volume is kind of you're unpacking some new things, but then it's a beautiful trilogy that I really encourage you to get. Uh, The final volume just released last month. 
Um, so it's brand new, brand new to the market. But what maybe is a good place for folks to start? I think it's kind of overwhelming sometimes with Lewis because you can see the just plethora of works, the fiction, the nonfiction. You can see all of these biographies and treaties and thoughts and ideas about Lewis. Where would you encourage folks to start? Obviously, outside of your own work, but where would you encourage folks if they wanted to start reading Lewis in his own words, whether it's fiction or nonfiction? I think uh, mere Christianity is probably the, the place to start. And there you get a f- flavor for him and you become aware of how smart you are because he is understandable, but he's dealing with some of the most complex ideas of the last 2,500 years and he makes them accessible. And the audience really does realize, oh, I, I understand this. That makes perfect sense to me. So I think those and um, his science fiction trilogy, for those who like uh, science fiction, some people don't, but I would, I would start with mere Christianity and then try some of his fiction. I know with my my sons, we have a six-year-old and a four-year-old, and we wanted to start reading the Chronicles of Narnia out loud to them. Um, and I'll, I'll end on this front. I know that there's debate on where you start in that series. Uh, you had Lewis's ordering, but then you have the kind of chronological ordering. Do you have a position on how you should read Chronicles of Narnia? I think read it uh, as they were published. Otherwise, the, the uh, you wind up with um, spoilers. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he wrote it. Originally, he just had one book idea. He wasn't planning on writing seven books. Yeah. And he wrote one, and, and then he had an idea for another one. And then, well, that's it. I've written two books. And then, oh, I've got an idea for a third one. So he wrote three. <laughs> that's it. No more. So I would, I would start with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, um, you know, I, I know people who've been converted to Christ through those stories. The, the former dean of the um, Baptist Theological Seminary of Singapore, uh, who grew up um, Buddhist in Malaysia, was converted through reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. My daughter learned to read through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She just didn't grasp reading when you were just reading, you know, individual words and there was no story, but the story drew her forward and she she learned to read that way. Hmm. Well, it's it's funny, as you mentioned, how Lewis, especially with Chronicles of Narnia, wrote one and thought he was done. I think you kind of picked up on that, especially with your uh, your trilogy there, <laughs> yes. feeling like you were going to write one and you ended up writing a trilogy. So, But uh, Dr. Poe, it's been a real joy to have you here on the podcast. Obviously, you're a wealth of knowledge on numerous issues, but particularly in Lewis. And I know I'm grateful uh, for the countless hours and work that you have sunk into a project like this. It's really a beautiful trilogy. I encourage uh, folks to go out and grab it. You may already have the first two, so you can go and grab that third one, The Completion of C.S. Lewis from Crossway. Uh, But Dr. Poe, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. Thank you, Jason. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing, but also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Poe and learn more about his new book, The Completion of C.S. Lewis, as well as the numerous resources we talked about throughout this episode in the show notes. Also make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of the public square today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. 
you can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.